0: podcast by the Center for Western Studies here in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Jack Val, uh, one of the faculty members of the Center for Western Studies, and I am joined always by the director of the center himself, John Hodges.
1: Jack, it's good to see you. Good to see you too, sir.
0: Uh, first things first, a bit of a correction from last week's podcast, just real quick. Uh, I had said somewhere in there that Nathan Bedford Forrest Gave a speech at what I call the Tent Pollers Association. Oh, right. That's incorrect. That's actually the Pole Bearers Association. Not the Tent Pollers, but
1: the Pole Bearers. Not Pole Bearers. No, it's Pole Bearers. P O okay. L E. Okay. So the Pole Bearers, little correction. That was though. the name of the group, huh? Yes. Well, that was an astonishing story. I appreciated your telling us about that, that, uh, that he really changed his mind a lot about uh, slavery in the end. Well, you've had an interesting weekend, haven't you?
0: I have. I uh, spent my time at Dragon Con. Dragon she... Con.
1: Tell us about that.
0: Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's like there are several major uh, comic conventions, the uh, mecca of the geek world, basically, <laughs> the several meccas. There's like Comic Con is probably the largest ones. And there's, That's
1: all over the world world right well I mean, there's, even in australia i
0: know i know there's the two major ones i know of are new york and san diego, san diego. those are the two big ones were like trailers drop and like that's mm-hmm. where robert downey jr and chris evans and those guys they go to those okay. okay then there's WonderCon, which is also in california i can't remember where and then there's DragonCon, which is in the south and it's always at least as far as i remember it's always been in atlanta
1: is it all to do with fantasy and uh Fairy tale and. Yes,
0: it has to do with like, fantasy literature, sci fi literature, literature, comic books, anime, anything, you know, TV related. I went, uh, while I was there, I had no idea what was going on or what to do, so I just stuck with my wife, who are there's, uh, friends of ours, our couple friends, as it are. Uh, they invited us to go along, and we said, sure, so we all kind of shacked up together <laughs> to do this. And they. Um, they knew where they wanted to go and what they wanted to see. I had no idea what was going on. So I just tagged along with them. And so my wife is a big Battlestar Galactica fan. Oh, yes. So there are Battlestar Galactica panels, and she got to see... Uh, uh, Starbuck, who was like her absolute favorite character, and she got to like take pictures with her and stuff like that. Now,
1: just to prove that I'm geeky too, is this the early one with Lauren Green or is this the later one? This is the later one. The with, later one, right.
0: With uh, Katie Sackley. Sackoff. 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 Right. Quite right. Katie Sackoff, yeah. Right. And
1: so she was Starbuck in the second version.
0: We went to like two panels and. Was she there? Yeah, she was there. Like, that's the thing. It's like, that's the thing. It's like at Dragon Con, I feel like Comic Con gets more main persons or something like that. Dragon Con gets a few. I think Stan Lee was there. Wow. We didn't get to see him because by the time we got there and figured out which building you get registered in, which was a, which was quite an adventure. <laughs> it was, felt sometimes like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. But <laughs> I mean, uh, but uh, when we finally figured that out and found the line, the line was huge, and they said there was no more seating. So. Oh. That was a little demoralizing, but we got our bearings again. But for the most part, it's like they had the uh, Battlestar Galactica a TV show cast most of them, Huh. and uh, they had a bunch of other science fiction and fantasy actors and stuff. Had a couple of Power Rangers. My had goodness. a couple. Of Star How would shows. you know? Well, that's the thing. I know. It's like, how would you know? Unless you've been in that culture. I mean, I was sitting no, there. I mean, they've
1: got masks, right? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, hot, oh,
0: very, yes, absolutely. Well, their color. Their color. Of oh, color. Of course. They're, of they're course. What public. am I thinking? But, I mean, I was sitting there and, you know, we went to go see some Star Trek beauty pageant, which was more like a comedy sketch sort of thing over and over <laughs> again. Uh, but it was it was emceed uh, by Garrett Wong. I think his name is. He was Ensign Kim on Star Trek Voyager. Okay. And I didn't realize it at first. He's like, Garrett Wong! And he like, comes out and he starts talking and I kind of squint because I'm in the back and I'm like, is that Ensign Kim? And I'm like, oh my gosh! And I was it like, this is, is Kim. I and I just that. randomly like in the line to a Starbucks and one of the hotels run into like Zachary McGowan who's uh, stars in Black Sales. He was just there. I didn't talk to him. He was just next to me. Huh. And like the, the cashier girl recognized him and went absolutely insane. Wow. Wow. But I had to infer from people calling him Zach and then somebody saying he looked good and black he was great in black sales I just looked up on Wikipedia who it was and I was like oh
1: wow cool. oh, there he is
0: so there it is. was quite fascinating to see everybody it was wonderful to see everybody dressed up I say fascinating like I was on safari or something <laughs> it, was, it felt like safari sometimes if you're a newcomer but it was also a, 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 an awesome place to be there's lots of fun stuff going on
1: it's an interesting bunch of people they kind of go to these hoping that they can be themselves or something don't
0: they? It is. It's definitely uh, these con- these conventions are definitely I don't know if safe haven is the right word but it's a place where people who feel maybe it, it, it's hard sometimes to say this. what I'm about to say. I was about to say it's a place where people who feel kind of outcast or rejected or something yeah. like that. It, I sometimes feel like it's hard to say that because geek culture so to speak has gotten so mainstream that mm. it feels like you know you have celebrities and politicians and uh late night T V show host who play video games or talk about the movies or right. well. So right. it doesn't feel quite as outcasty as more at least you would think that. But the truth is is you can this is a place where it's all, unless you're like punching somebody in the street. It's which did not happen. I'm just saying as long as you're just everyone's <laughs> there and you're just kind of respect everybody else. You don't like mess with anybody else. Yeah. Is that like nice? Um, then you're accepted and you're welcomed. It doesn't matter. You can dress up in as crazy a costume as you want. Uh, you can dress up, you know, there were men dressing as women. There was, you know, uh, people doing all kinds of things, and nobody judges you. Nobody looks cross eyed at you. It really feels like it's a place where celebrities, unless they're like total, you know, elite jerks, which at these conventions, they don't feel like it. They feel like they're very appreciative of their fan base. So. Mm-hmm when my wife went, we, we got to meet Katie Sarkoff.
1: No right? kidding.
0: Yeah. We met her and, uh, cause she was like, there was a place called like the walk of fame or something. And it's just where all the stars sit and do autographs. I see. And she got to get a picture with her. Oh nice. And she was very, like my wife says, she's very down to earth and very cool about everything. So it's like, you can be these weird, quote unquote, weird things. And you can be your weird self and no one's going to judge you or like look cross-eyed at you. And you're, And there was an interesting, there was actually an interesting live metaphor of this. I say metaphor, it was a very concrete thing, but it just kind of put a point on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, There were people, every time, when you walk. okay, so the way DragonCon works, like most conventions, I suppose, the way DragonCon worked is it was broken up over like four or five hotels that are like in downtown Atlanta. Okay. And so you had to go to the different hotels if you wanted to like, you know, oh, you're going to do the, you know, the... Uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe panel, that's over in the Marriott. But if you want to do Battlestar Galactica, it's over in the Hilton. Uh And they're all connected to each other. Matter of fact, I think like the Hyatt, the Marriott, and the Hilton, uh, which are not sponsoring us, by the way, but those hotels were all like connected with each other. So Uh you could just like walk from one to the other. Um, But sometimes you walk outside, because why not get from one hotel to the other? And at certain intersections, there were people... With bullhorns and big signs that said, you know, God hates your sin and, you know, repent, repent and turn. And they had, and I don't know if they were, it's not, it felt like a protest, but they weren't exactly protesting. It was like one person on this corner and one person down there. And they were just very kind of sincerely but monotonously just kind of presenting a very basic sort of gospel message. Mm. You're, you know, we're all sinners. You're sinners. You feel the weight of your sin. Jesus is the only salvation. Come
1: to Jesus. Sort of. And they were speaking specifically to the the Dragon Con? To the uh, crowd. They just were there basically just,
0: yeah, they were just there. They were there
1: because that thing was going on. Right. It wasn't just generally. Right. I don't don't think this
0: is a regular feature of Atlanta downtown life, but they were there. Yeah, they were there for it. And they were just outside and they were doing their bullhorn thing, and I and it was like they, it's not why like I said like this was like a visual metaphor of what I mean. Yeah, is that it's almost like those people, whether they intended it or not, because I don't want to like smack on them because they're fellow Christians. Sure. So I don't want to smack on them. I do think personally their tactic was completely misguided, mainly because that form of witnessing, so to speak, draws more attention to yourself than it does to like the gospel or anything mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. because people were responding more to them than mm-hmm. what they had to say. It seemed, but the visual metaphor was that here is a person who in a cliche way represents that kind of judgment. You know, mm-hmm. here's somebody with a bullhorn blasting in your face that you're a sinner and you need to repent. Right. Well, guess what? At this dragon con, you outnumber them like thousands to one. Yeah. And yeah. people were just mocking them together and laughing at them there was, I wish I knew the reference to it, what show it was, but there was, like, these two guys who their costume were, was, like, they were in, like, complete, like, yellow jumpsuits with gas masks. And I couldn't tell if they were, like, being the guys from Monsters, Inc. Do you remember Monsters, Inc.? Oh, yeah, How, like, oh, if, sure. like, a human thing came into the world, you know, those weird monsters in, like, yes. yellow jumpsuits were, like, I couldn't yeah. tell if it was yes. that or not, but it felt like that. And they mm. had, like, two push brooms. <laughs> and they, they like... And they, like, when the guy was, like, talking on the bullhorn, two of these guys in these yellow jumpsuits and stuff came up and didn't attack him or anything. They just came up and, like, started using the pushrooms, like, scrub him <laughs> and scrub his sign and stuff like that. And everybody, everybody all across the, the sidewalk, there's, like, hundreds of people just cheering loudly. Wow. Because now you're in a place where you outnumber them. And they're the outcast.
1: Yeah. And
0: you're yeah. in the safe place
1: yeah
0: by the way there were there they weren't the only christians there by a long shot there was in the vendors building there was somebody doing a much better job it was called gamer church or something like that it set up a booth there's, there's a vendors building it's like three floors of just people selling all kinds of geek merchandise uh-huh. but they had a booth where they were giving their t-shirts cost a little money but everything else like a book called jesus loves gamers and stuff like that and other things were all free uh-huh. and they were just like uh-huh. there to say hey we're geeks and you're geeks, and Jesus loves you, you know. It was a much better approach. It was like Uh not standing there screaming at them Uh with a bullhorn. But that kind of image of, like, there's the, you know, the the rejector, and now they're the ones rejected because they're the lone person, and we're now the big group. It just was like a visual metaphor of what that world is for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's not just – it is a place where you can go and see people you – Idolize in the right sort of way, like you know, your heroes or somebody who you um, uh, just really like. I mean, that's why partly why they're there. My wife was there to see an actress she loves, she loves the character. Uh, My uh, the couple we went with, uh, uh, I was first name uh, Oliver was one. Uh, Oliver, um, he was a big fan of a man named Benjamin Percy, who's a writer who was like a literary writer but then he realized that he was bored with literary writing and he got back into like fantasy and speculative fiction stuff Uh and now he's trying to bridge the gap between it and it's a big thing all that's close to oliver's heart and so benjamin is a big hero to him Uh uh-huh and Uh benjamin percy was going to be there with a couple panels and book signings and so oliver brought his book Uh so people go there for those things right sure they definitely go there but they also definitely go there because here's a place where for lack of a better term, they can let the freak flag fly, so to speak. Or they can
1: be... Dress up in their lizard suit if they want to. Right.
0: Or, you know, wear the thing they want to or do whatever. And, you know, not that there's probably not going to be judgment, but nobody's going to out and out say it at you. And also, it's Dragon Con. Everybody expects people to dress weird. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it becomes normal. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of a safe place where they can feel
1: accepted. You know, on the the, uh, question of the... Bullhorning, bull, bullhorned Christians—the <laughs> mm. ones on the corners that are that's using a, the bullhorn—that's a good term. Um, there is, um, on, there are two things I want to say. First of all, it is interesting to me that when a group thinks it's in the minority, it seems to want to stand up for its rights, and and uh, everybody needs to be loved and accepted and tolerated, and so on, like that. Mm. But then when they become the majority. Uh, and the Christians are in the minority, they can be very bullying and, and unkind, I think. Sure. But that's just one thought. The other thought is that it's, it's really not, it's not that what they say isn't true, it's that it's not wise somehow, right. don't you think? No, oh, yeah. Um, it reminds me, actually, of a topic I want us to talk about today, which is this uh, uh, debate over the Nashville uh, statement. Right. That came out. If you haven't read about the Nashville Statement, we'll let you do that on your own. Uh, but there is a statement that came uh, signed by many uh, in the uh, Christian world. Was it uh, like a
0: Southern Baptist Convention statement or something like that? Because it came out of Nashville. I don't
1: know. came out of Nashville. I don't know that it's Southern Baptist. I know there are a lot of people that are, have signed it that are not Southern Baptist. So wow. people like J.I. Packer and, and, uh, and uh, Cal Beisner and some others. Uh, but it's, it's to, in a nutshell, it's a statement about what they think a biblical view of, uh, of uh, marriage and sexuality is all about, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there have been some responses to it, I think, that have, uh, that have, in a sense, argued with it the same way that we might argue against our fellow Christians with the bullhorns. Mm-hmm. In this, uh, it, that, that they may be speaking the truth, mm-hmm. but they may be saying it in such a way that can't be heard or uh, is unwise somehow. And I'd love to talk about that for a second. Sure. Do you want to jump in there and I'll, and I'll follow sure. up?
0: Sure. Well, the, the, the interesting, interesting about the Nashville Statement, I ran into it, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for, like circuitously or something like that? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't run into it directly. It was like, I came about by something else. I was wandering um, the, the dungeons of Facebook, basically, <laughs> uh, looking for somebody who's wrong. Because good the, good rare isn't it to find someone who's wrong it's like digging for silver or something <laughs> but i was trying i was just wandering around and seeing what was going on because i i try to keep up with like popular opinions and yeah. things like that and someone had posted a, a, a thing it wasn't a news outlet i think it was somebody i uh, uh run into personally so yeah like a personal you know. account. Sure. and they had posted this thing Which was some sort of statement on LGBT issues. And I'm interested in these sort of like popular issues, hot button or otherwise. Certainly. And what made me want to read it is that this person had posted part of the statement. And it was just a very bold, just putting it out there. I almost said breathtaking. But most people, when they say it was just a breathtaking, they're kind of being pretentious about like how obnoxious they thought it was. But it was a very just kind of, you know... We believe that, you know, LGBT sexual expression is a part of God's creation, and he approves of it, and they are loved by him, and they don't need to change, It's so on and so It was a very kind of right. heterodoxical right. sort of like, but it was like strong. It was like, this is the way it is, get on board or get run over sort of thing uh-huh. by the tides of history. And I was like, wow, what is this? Mm-hmm. So I clicked on the link to look at it, and it was a statement by uh, the liturgist, which is... It's, it's a website, but I also think it's a band run by uh, the gungers. Uh, I think it's called oh, yeah. Michael and Lisa Gunger. I yes, think. Right. Christian musicians caused quite a stir. I don't know if it was last year or a couple of years ago, but they caused quite a stir when they very openly came out in support of gay marriage, so-called mm-hmm. gay marriage, LGBT issues, and so on and so forth. They came out in big support of it. Mm-hmm. And so on their website, or on their liturgist website, I guess, they released... Their own sort of statement. It was this long sort of like very bold declaration. And I was like, what is... They kept mentioning something called the Nashville Statement. Right. I was like... Right. Oh, Making
1: oh. reference to it.
0: All right. So I went and I looked up the Nashville Statement. I found it. It's like 14 articles, I think. Right. And I was... The whole thing, going from the liturgist statement to the Nashville Statement, it struck me that if I just run into the Nashville Statement alone, I would have thought nothing of it. I would have been like... "It's it, First of all, it's all very sort of standard orthodox christian stuff there's nothing new here standard christian sexual ethical teaching and stuff like that um i was glad that they had a bunch of statements about that you know lgbt people are made in the image of god and they ought not to be bullied or mistreated or anything like they were trying to cut that line of like they ought not to be mistreated and we have to stand for the truth of what god says and so on and so forth but it was it was very standard, just kind of, you know, oh, here's what we, didn't, we affirm, we deny, that typical kind of, I don't know, American church way of writing statements. Right. I, right. Thought, I thought nothing of it because, A, it was very traditional, and, B, it just felt like another statement. Like, I've heard things like the Manhattan Declaration that came out a couple of years ago. And not to cast, as you would say, sort of to cast asparagus. Cast, I don't want to cast asparagus at, 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 at anybody. At, at anybody. Yeah. But I'd never been impressed by those statements, mainly because... I mean, they maybe serve as like a rallying cry or sort of like a central thing. Or as somebody I heard said, it's just it's just sort of an in-house thing, even though they posted it on the Internet. But it's supposed to be like an in-house Christian church thing to just remind everybody this is what the Orthodox position is. That's in right. Uzbekistan. It's not That's meant right. to be like pastoral or... How to like this is how you should speak to people in real life. It's just like here's like a doctrinal statement. That's it.
1: I think that's a very good point because it's easy to think. In fact, I read I read the national statement and I read the uh, the liturgist statement as well, and I and then I read this uh, Sprinkles fellow, Preston Preston Sprinkles. Preston Sprinkles. Uh, and actually, I thought uh, Sprinkles had some good things to say. Um, I, I think that he was warning that uh, a statement that has uh, You know, we affirm and we deny, and so on. In it, uh, seems a bit harsh and difficult. And he was making the argument that we were just sort of making against the uh, the bullhorn guy on the bullhorn. Mm. Um, But I do think that you're onto something when you when you start talking about uh, what the intention was for the original statement, Mm. because I think it's possible to look at the Nashville statement of all these, an attempt to get very clear. Uh, a clear-eyed view of what the bi- the biblical position should be or is not should be is, and uh, clarify it for the world. Th- to to assume when you look at that statement that it's that it actually is answering the question that he I think sprinkles at the end gives an example. What if your fourteen-year-old boy came to you and said, "Dad, I think I'm gay." Hmm. Uh, the uh, the way that the Nashville statement is written is probably not the way that the father would then right. speak to his son. Right. Right but that's the that, that's the point i think if you if you hear the, if you read the nashville statement as though it were an attempt like a primer on how to address uh, in a pastoral way somebody who's going through a hard time right. then sure you get, i can understand why yeah, sprinkle said all the things that he did you would get the bullhorn Christian. well that's it and i think for a legitimate uh, argument i think there's a legitimate argument there but for uh, but for what it actually is attempt, attempting to do it actually should be a help to everybody, even those, I think, who are uh, going through difficult times. Because it will clarify at least where things are. If you take it as a personal affront, yeah, it does, it's not much use. Right. Or it's, not, it's, it's useful, but only so useful. Right. But if you take it as a, a clarification of what the Bible actually says, then you end up um, helping people who truly want the truth. And I think, actually, I think the fellow Sprinkles himself may be one of those who loves the truth. It seems to me, uh, if I've got him right, he is tempted uh, in homosexual, to, to homosexual attraction mm. and has decided to be celibate about it and to continue in his walk with the Lord uh, and uh, uh, and uh, wrestle wrestle with his yeah. temptations, just like anybody who sins wrestles with his temptations. Uh, in that case, I don't have any problem with him at all. But
0: Yeah, no, I when I walked out amongst dragon car, like it was a fun time, but I had a moment somewhere early on where I was sitting there and I really, I just kind of understood that this was like a place for these people. And I saw the bullhorn people and I was unimpressed by what they were doing. I understood why they were doing it. It's not like God can't use whatever he wants to use, but still, like I said, unwise, an unwise approach. Uh, but I remember standing there looking at all of them and having sort of a fields white on the harvest type of yes, feeling sure so it's like these people need to be actually reached and it doesn't get you don't reach them by bullhorning them to death or something like that you know you need it, it came to me because I went to a panel um, the second panel I went to the first panel we went to was Stanley we couldn't get in to see Stanley because mm. it's just it's Stanley it was blocked out the wazoo uh, if you understand what a wazoo is and we're trying to get in. We're trying to get in there. So we have our first panel. It was just unimpressive. It was like, hey, whatever. Was just people talking about whatever. The second panel that we go to uh, was interesting. It was about sci-fi writers, I believe it was. But it had two two men on it: uh, Derek Hughes and Robert Cargill. And I've heard of him. Derek, Derek Hughes. What did he do? Derek Hughes was uh, he's a writer for several things, but the main thing I remember is he's a writer for the Flash television series. Uh-huh. And Robert Cargill. Was one of the writers for the Doctor Strange movie. Okay, okay. And so it was kind. I knew I'd seen like, their names. I was like, oh, kind of a big. I was like, all right, yeah. it's kind of a big deal. That's pretty cool. And like, it was interesting because after the panel where they talked about what it means to like write a superhero thing, how interesting that is, or something like that. Uh, my wife and our friends, we went outside to like grab a bike to eat. And no longer, no, no sooner were we out there, like ten or twenty minutes that. Hughes and Cargill came outside to like huh. have a cigarette or something like that. And they were talking about let's go get something to eat and they just stood right next to us. And uh, Oliver's wife, Jana, who's with us, just like Oliver was about to have a conniption because it was just like, oh my gosh, these <laughs> two guys. He's but he angry. didn't, he was like, oh, no, I can't go up there and talk to him. And his wife was like, yes, you're going to oh, talk. Sure. So she, she broached it and they talked. And Robert Cargill. I'm gonna hear it as a Christian.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And he had written the Doctor Strange movie, he had written a couple of horror movies actually, Sinister and Sinister 2. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him and I'm like, you know, that's how that's a that's how you do it. All uh-huh. right. Not to like me, I mean, I don't know all of him or his personal life, but I'm like, if you're going to do it, you're gonna try and reach these people. Then go be you know be a geek. Go like write this stuff and get it published and get it not for the sake of like like a plan, but do because you want to. Like yeah. you, you love this stuff, so you write it. and Then you go to convention and then you can talk to people, and they'll want to talk to you because they know who you are. Maybe you've already touched their life through your writing, and that was kind of the moment where I was like, "We need more people like that." I mean, that's right. something I want to do. That's kind of right. an ultimate goal is to like become someone like that you know to be, get in that way so amen that's that's a, i feel is a much better goal than like standing around with bullhorns because it's actually getting on the inside and there's nothing that says you have to compromise your you know who you are a compromise what you believe at all i mean he wasn't the only one i mean zach there's a guy zachary levi i think it is i can't remember if it's levi or how they pronounce it levy it looks like levi yeah. But he's he's an actor and he's been in a bunch of fun stuff and he had he had a big contingent of fans. Like it was a huge uh my wife amongst them. And she like got in a big line to go there and I went to do something else, but she says you know, tons of people went to see him. Hmm. Right? Just to see him. He's not on a panel of a bunch of people, it's just him. Wow. And ask him questions here, and talk. He's a Christian too. Uh-huh. So it's like they're there. Yes. And I feel like those guys, you know, the Cargills and the, the Levi's and whatever. They have a track inside that the bullhorns will never have
1: well it seems like the if we're calling them the bullhorns um with with that, with sympathy the, with the sympathy that they deserve I think um it it seems it comes across as though you don't care about the people you're talking to, sure doesn't it that's really the the part and I think um I think going back to sprinkle's argument, i think his his whole piece was based on uh the idea that. The The statements in this uh, Nashville uh, uh, statement, <clears throat> the the articles in there, were all, for the most part, agreeable yeah. to him. He he didn't have much in the way of problems. One or two of them he had some questions about. But nearly all of the opposition that he had was in the way that it was said. Right. Now, I get that. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I, my brother and I get into a fight, and my mother would say, John, you have to apologize to your brother. And I'd say... I'm sorry, <laughs> right. and she would say it's not just what you say; it's how you say it too, right? right? And there's it reveals your heart and so on. So it's possible that uh, we can turn people away from the gospel simply by uh, by speaking the truth without the love that we're called to speak it in. Right. At the same time, it's difficult to uh, to um, uh, hold to the truth. That somebody else really hates, right? Without seeming like you're holding to it is an offense to them personally, right? You see, and that's the that's the tightrope we walk, I think.
0: <clears throat> right. There's a there definitely is, and this is the frustrating for me because like the liturgy statement frustrated me, the Nashville statement. I don't know if it frustrated me. I think it, I think it only frustrated me in contrast. Like I, I was like I was saying, if I just seen the Nashville statement by itself, I would have thought nothing of it. It's just like oh, standard christian teaching and if it causes any stir it'll be like the manhattan declaration or something it rises in a night perishes in a night and we'll move on to the next controversy yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. but in in the context of seeing the liturgist response and whoever else's response both kind of the whole thing frustrated me mm-hmm. because there is this balance of so to speak of love and truth by balance i don't mean like half and half i mean more like right, right. all I mean, in all chesterton said christianity mm-hmm. has a healthy dislike of pink and what he <laughs> what he meant was is that you know they prefer like red and white blazing in all their full glory rather than just kind of
1: diluting each I, other. I think that's a very good way to put and it. And that's
0: a better kind of balance. And there is this that kind of balance between truth and love or you could say grace and truth if you want to use like the stuff from the gospel of John Jesus came that's full right. of grace and truth. It's both in him at the same time and you definitely feel especially in this discussion. You could pick any sort of discussion between uh, Christianity and culture right now. But on, especially this discussion, there are people on both sides and they seem to aggravate each other and cause them to do even more of this is they seem to want to drive a wedge between those two ideas. Right. And it's- the end result is that either A, you become like, I guess the Gunger type or something like that where you just completely take what is what is Christian sexual ethics, all right, which is not at all parallel to slavery or anything or like you know they said that like you know the church says that homosexuality or or any sort of like quote-unquote deviant sexual behavior is immoral you know they also said that slavery was moral or something like that and i'm like it's not the same thing there is nowhere in the bible that says chapter and verse slavery is right at all times there's plenty of stuff that talks about it and because it was a normal part of culture back then, ways of dealing with it. But anybody who reads the New Testament and doesn't see the seeds planted for the destruction of slavery as an institution in time is just not reading the New Testament. Yeah, and the right. people who, here's the way I looked at it. The people in the past who tried to argue slavery was biblical had to do a bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics yes. in order to do it. Right. Well, today it's the people who try to say that LGBT or any sort of like Non-biblically sexual ethic behavior. Let's put it that way. Where LGBT sexual behavior is like okay, or is completely acceptable to God. They're the ones that have to do the hermeneutical gymnastics. That's, exactly. It's not like well, the Bible said so, but culture was different, or something. That's not the rubric. Culture can never be the rubric for what's right or wrong. Uh, it's more. It, it's I'm looking at who has to do the most arm twisting of the source material mm-hmm. to make it work, and so I see a bunch of arm twisting. But I see like on their side. So there's like to affirm it. But on the other side, it's like there's no compassion. There's like Mm -hmm. no sense like, hey, you're not dealing with a, and this is the really hard one. You're not dealing with a political opponent who wants to like destroy your schools and take away your religious liberties. I mean, there's that out there. Right. But when you're dealing with the person on the street, you're dealing with the soul. Okay, that's how my grandmother would have put it. You're like, never forget the eternal value of the human soul. You're dealing with a soul. You're not dealing with an idea or a construct or something like that or just a bunch of faces on a sidewalk. And so there is this wedge that tries to get dug in between the two things, that you're so loving and so affirming and so compassionate that truth just collapses, and you even find ways to just kind of dismiss the truth or say, well, it really wasn't the truth. Or you run so hard with the truth that it almost like you care more about the doctrinal clarity than you do about the souls out there and how they're being affected. That's right. And like I said, we find in Jesus, we don't find such a dichotomy between love and truth or grace and truth. He was... Both at the same time, and he didn't seem to think that one had to be sacrificed or diluted, sacrificed to the other or diluted by the other.
1: And that's a good point. It it also is that you, the two of them, actually do come together in ways that people don't ordinarily think about. That is, but if they, but if they've had any experience, say, raising children, even um, or teaching a class of young children, uh, you, you know that sometimes. Holding the line on the truth is the loving thing to do. Uh What I mean is you have to actually risk losing the friendship of the other person or even the good...
0: Relationship.
1: Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, the good opinion. Right. You know, the good opinion of yourself. You, you sacrifice your own good opinion to a degree in order to be able to help that other person actually not go the wrong direction, right. a direction that he thinks is very good and that you know is going to destroy him. So if my three year old boy uh, wants to walk across the street and I say, oh, sure, that's okay. You just do whatever you feel like, it's not loving. Right. See, it's not sympathetic. It's not loving. It's not caring for him to allow him to do that, right. because there are trucks going by, and he doesn't understand anything about that. So, <clears throat> it's possible. You know, we're all sinners, and we're all in our sinful state. We're all blind mm-hmm. to things, right? You, you, if you want something so badly, you rationalize away. The truth, in order to have it, right. what you need is a brother or sister in the in the faith who cares enough about you to risk the relationship with you in order to to bring the truth gently. Gently, I'm, I'm not talking about being harsh and bullhornish, but I'm talking right. about uh, entering into your life and caring enough about you that he's willing to take that chance.
0: Yeah, that's 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 the distinction. It's a good distinction because people have used the example before of like, oh, well, they're running out in the traffic, you know, they're a child. Wouldn't you pull your child out? Sure. But don't forget, there's actually a relationship there. That's, That's why right. Like parent to child. Is exactly. A, now, that doesn't mean like if you were a stranger and you saw a child about walking the street, you shouldn't pull them back. But recognize that the child may scream their head off and their parents who weren't paying attention and then turn around and see you holding their child by the nape of their, you know, shirt are going to wonder what you're doing and be very mad. At you. And there's a whole bunch of mess that happens you have to explain. If you don't have a relationship with the person already, It's not impossible to help them, but it's better when you have that actual relationship, and that's what's not being, that's what sometimes doesn't get
1: built. Exactly, that's a very good point. I think uh, you you need to be able to build a relationship with somebody, and what you mentioned earlier about Comic Con, or I mean uh, Dragon Con, and the and the writers who are Christians going into there and actually doing a good job writing, and then having a chance, having a platform in a sense, uh, to be able to build, uh, to speak what they want to say, is a way of building that kind of relationship. Um, and it can't be faked. No. You, you can't just say, well, I'm going to write uh, these stories because I want an opportunity to evangelize. No, you have to actually care about the stories. You have to care about the art.
0: Wasn't there someone, you, you, you have your education in conducting, yes. in conduction and composition. Didn't you, wasn't there someone you knew when you were that like, he was a composer and
1: conductor, he was a Christian, but
0: he didn't care about the music nearly as much as he cared about getting a message out? He, about- well,
1: at one point in his life, I, I don't know if he's still thinking this way or not, uh, but, but at one point in his life, he was saying, the only reason I get these jobs in conducting is so that I can evangelize musicians in the orchestra. It gives me an opportunity to evangelize. Well, I think it's, it's half of what you were talking about, but not the whole thing. Yeah, maybe you get an opportunity to talk to them. But if you don't care about the, the music, if you're just doing it for the evangelism, and I don't know that he was completely, but if he was, uh, then he, you see through it. It's brittle. It's too two-dimensional. Right. It's not real. Right. And so the kind of relationship that you actually want to have gets undermined.
0: I yeah, think. it works like Robert Cargill works because he actually is a geek.
1: he right. Whether he was a Christian or not, he'd still be writing this stuff. It's a kind of bait-and-switch tactic. Mm-hmm. You're saying, hey, I'm one of you. I, I, I write these things too. And then when you find out that they really are only doing it in order to get – to, to teach you about, the, about God, you think, well, you, you promised me one thing and you gave me the other. Right. And I don't think, a lot of times our brothers and sisters with bullhorns, I believe they're on our side, yeah. so sure. I'm not trying to knock them completely, but our brothers and sisters with bull, bullhorns often think, all I need to do is tell them the truth, it doesn't make any difference whether I have a relationship with them or not. And the result of that is that it actually does damage to the message that's being spoken.. Right. It was Jesus that looked out, as you did at the at Dragon Con, maybe, and felt a, a, a bit of a, a field white with harvest, you know people that you could speak to and love and care for and, and be involved with minister to. Yeah. Uh, Jesus lo- saw Jerusalem right, and wept over Jerusalem. He, cry, he, was, he was moved to tears. And I'm and saying, I I want so badly to call you to me. I want so badly to be able to help you have a relationship with me, and for me to love you, see my love for you, and so on. It was never him on the top of the mountain with a bullhorn yelling at <laughs> right, Jerusalem. Right. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Hey, you guys down there. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you down there. Yeah. Right. That's not. That's not that. No. And I think the. Um, I think the attitude um, that that we should have is. The the artwork is itself inherently worthwhile. Yes, you see, and if that's the case, then the people who also love the artwork will see the legitimacy in your heart, and yeah, and then there's a there's a relationship that may eventually come to the point where you can uh, earn, in a sense, earn a, the right to talk to them about their about their lives. Yeah, and
0: that's that's you say to earn the right, and that really is the key. It's like you have. I feel like it's real missionary work involves actually becoming a part of the culture you're trying to like win. Yes. Or at the very least, be already in some way have a connection with that culture. I mean, a person who goes into like a foreign field, if they're going there, oh, I feel called to go there, but they've never had any interest in that country or its culture or its people. Right. It's not that they can't learn, but I feel like they're going to have a really hard time for like the first few years if they, if, especially if they don't sincerely start to. A part of that culture, but if it's somebody who's like you know, they want to be a missionary to Japan or something like that, well, they've always loved Japan, yeah. and they've even tried to yeah. learn Japanese land. Maybe they're a huge anime freak and they just love sure. it or something, so they already had this sort of love of that culture anyway, you know, of its history or stuff like that. They're gonna have a much better time of it, you know, they're gonna be able to integrate in that culture and sincerely do it. It's not gonna sure. be like I have to do this because this is my duty, there's gonna be that I want to be there, yeah. And people, like you said, people can tell. They can tell when you want to be there because you just love the thing. When you want to talk to them because you love to talk to them. That was the thing I keep bringing up Cargill because we had the closest like contact with him. But when uh, my friend Jana got Oliver to talk to him, I mean, Cargill, he didn't seem off-put at all. He wanted to talk and he yeah. like wanted to encourage Oliver in his writing. Yes, and, yeah. and it just was like I just sat there and I'm like that right there. Is and this was me feeling very zealous in the moment because I was working on two hours of sleep and a six-hour car ride. But <laughs> I was sitting there feeling, you know, later on was feeling like that right there is more effective than like an army of bullhorns. Yeah. Right. Just like one person who genuinely cares about the subject matter and seems to genuinely care about you. Yes. Like, like, uh, you even if they don't fully know you, they just care because you care about this same thing and like they're really interested in it.
1: I, it reminds me of something, maybe a little tangential, but I want to bring it up here anyway. Mm. Uh, I heard uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, speak uh, the other day, uh, and one of the things he said was, God didn't come to make bad men good. Mm. God came to make dead men live. Yeah, And I really like that distinction. The more I think about it, the more I think the the bullhorn approach may very well be misguided in unwise in the specific sense that they think they're trying to make people who are doing bad things, stop doing them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you're dressing wrong or you're, you know, uh, idolizing the wrong things right, so or right. you're, you know,
0: you're into this culture. So you must necessarily be a bunch of sinful, you know, degenerate freaks. So it's a,
1: it's a, it's a foolish thing thought because, of course, we're all sinners to begin with anyway, so to, to put yourself outside that suddenly seems sort of pharisaical. But but in addition to that, it seems to be interested in trying to make people who are doing bad things become people who do good things. Right. And I don't think God cares about that so much. I sound, I sound a little radical here. But I think he knows that the fact is we're all dead without him, right. see? And what he really wants is is I mean we're all Lazarus in the tomb, and he's actually calling us to life, calling us back to life again. Right. And life is what we want to give uh, those that we're talking to. And I think about when you talk about Cargill speaking to your friend Oliver, um, he's 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 speaking life into him. Yeah, you see, he's saying, "I know you love this, and these things are worthwhile to love," and. I want to encourage you to continue and to grow in it and to glorify God with that gift right. that you've been given. And that's in a sense a calling him in the right direction. It's a very different message than just saying
0: you're what you're doing is wrong. Now come over here with me and you'll be right. Right. You know? Right. It's right. It, is, it is in a larger sense kind of right and wrong in a way, but it's not like necessarily wrong doings, it's wrong being. Right? Yeah. Your yeah. your existence is like off kilter so much that the things that you're doing are actually could be fun and wonderful, and actually are legitimately fun and wonderful, but they are not. Oh, how to put it? It, it, it? The matter becomes too difficult for speech, I guess someone mm-hmm. once said. But it's like, you think you're, this is something that the Center of Western Studies also is, is really about. It, it, to put it in a, maybe a silly term, it's like, you think you're enjoying anime now? You haven't even begun to enjoy it, all right? You think right. like your enjoyment of it right now is real. It's real and it's valid and there's something really there, but there's a whole other level of enjoyment of all of creation and existence that you haven't even begun to tap into yet. And it only happens when you, your relationship with your creator is restored. Sure, It is about, I mean, the word flourishing gets overused too much, but it really is about that. It's about Mm -hmm. you are meant to be a specific thing, and that specific thing is meant to be glorious and joyful in glorifying and enjoying God. And that's what it's supposed to be in in all its facets, including its science fiction, all its everything, every human artifice that has been made. And it's not about losing those things. It's about enriching those things. It's making them even more glorious than before. I mean, if I could, someone like me or someone could go in there and say, you know, I feel like without my Christian faith and without my relationship to Christ, I wouldn't enjoy anime or fantasy or animation as much as I do, is a very different statement than saying, you dressed in the weirdness, you're obviously a sexual degenerate. Repent, sorry, or something like that. That's a very different kind of message. And I don't think it waters down or sells out. I feel like, I think the way uh, Preston Sprinkle put it is, we need to look at people. I mean, the way he put it was, if an LGBT person, let's kind of bring it back around. Mm-hmm. If they come to us and they say, you know, I'm struggling with these things, our response should be something like, oh, you're a sinner too? Well, mm-hmm. I'm a sinner. Here, hold my hand. We'll hold to the cross. Like yeah, together. Something right, like, right, we're right. just, oh, you're a beggar too? Hey, I know where to find bread. You know, yeah, that type of thing. Exactly. It's like, you're enjoying this stuff too? I well, guess what? I'm enjoying it. And I'm enjoying it like so much more because of whatever. I, I mentioned I, my friends, Jana. And Oliver, Janna went to the Zachary Levi thing. Again, I apologize if I'm saying his last name wrong, but I have this paranoid sense that I heard someone pronounce it Levy, which I think is completely incorrect, but if I'm wrong, I apologize. But she went there, and she wants to be like uh, an entertainer and like do you know stage stuff. Mm-hmm. And she said that listening to him talk about openly how the joy he finds in Christ is what gives him so much joy in his work.
1: Right. She Very said good. that
0: her hearing that greatly encouraged her sure. in her own sort of thing. And to think to get up there and say that, not that, you know, well, you know, you know, I found I was I was a miserable smoking, drinking, dancing, son of a gun until I found Jesus and he cleaned me up, is not the same as saying, you know, I my work in the stuff I do in these, you know, nerd festy kind of things is so much more wonderful because of the joy I find in Jesus mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. this stuff. That's a very. That's the kind of, you know. Dorothy Sayers put it. You know, people may not believe it, but at least they'll know there's something there
1: worth believing. Right. They certainly can't say ho hum about it. No. Right. Well, I'm. I'm. Uh, you were talking about uh, anime, and, and as an mm-hmm. example, and I and I appreciate that. I think that um, on the on on the flip side of that coin, in other words. You, to re- recount what you're saying, um, I might appreciate anime now, but I'll appreciate it all the more once I recognize that it's in the in the in the world that God has made, and that I can you know understand it in terms of of, uh, of the biblical view of the world. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, though, what happens is that the Western uh, culture, the 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 Rembrandts and the Shakespeare's and the Dantes of the world, hmm. um, in a sense, are getting short shrift. In our, in our day-to-day. And yeah. they're saying, a lot of times they're saying, well, because it's Western, we can't uh, give it special honor and special, uh, Sure. Uh, because there are all these other cultures too. And some people argue, you know, some people will ask us, you know, why is your center called uh, Center for Western Studies and not just culture in general? And one of the reasons is, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that we think that the Christian faith has actually been rooted in the western culture for longer than it's been rooted anywhere else in the world. Mm. And so because of that we're we should be looking at you know cultural oak trees in Western civilization, when if it's only been a, uh, a generation or two uh, of the faith in a place, uh, you're looking at uh, saplings, you're looking right. at uh, young trees, right? It's not that they're, that they're not alive, they're not real, they're not good, it's just that they're not old. Right. <laughs> so one of the ways uh, that we want to try and help uh, is to remind our culture, our own culture, uh, of its own history, right? So we want to go back to even the pre-Christian worlds and read Homer and read Aeschylus and read uh, uh, Plato, but also read Augustine and Dante and Milton and Shakespeare and so on. Um, and look at the paintings and the music and the, uh, the, uh, the architecture of the various uh, uh, countries in the world that have been called Western, wide variety of cultures that are included in what we call Western civilization. Not just in order to sort of, solidify everybody in one place and point fingers at everybody else, like these sort of bullhorn guys are doing. Sure. I mean, that would be the equivalent, it seems to me. Sure. But, but to say, now that I understand something about the effect that the Christian, uh, Christianity has had on a culture, I can critique my own culture from that Christian thought. See? Mm-hmm. Because the, the Western culture and Christianity are not the same thing. right? right? You just see an, 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 old, an older uh, effect in the culture in West, in the West than you would say in Africa or Japan. Or at least a more
0: enriched version of it. Right. You know, there are, I mean, someone could say like, you know, well, there's like Syrian churches that have been around for like over a thousand years. And like that, absolutely true. But because of all the Islamic invasions over the hundreds and thousands of years, a purely Christian culture or a heavily enriched Christian culture has not had a chance to develop.
1: That's true. That's so, very true. Uh, and, and yet we consider those Syrian churches part of Western civilization. Yeah. Right? Because when do. we say Western, we don't mean simply uh, West the Western church, Western Europe. Right? We mean uh, Christendom, right. as it were, including the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, and, right. and, and
0: so on. Including that combination of the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian worldview that That's kind, of, right. kind of encompassed all of the Mediterranean and areas beyond, from Western Europe to Eastern Europe to the Middle East to North Africa. A and lot of, then where it spread from beyond that—that's right.
1: A lot of the to to think, for example, that uh, that when we say Western civilization, we mean white people—is yeah. uh, a mistake because yes. many of the many of the most famous early church fathers were actually Africans. People yes. don't realize that, yes. but it's true. And so there were people from the Middle East and from Africa, and from or, Turkey, from yeah. you know, from uh, Eastern Europe, from uh, from the North, as as varied uh, as uh, the diff- difference between an Egyptian and a Scotsman, maybe you know. Yeah, so, But my point is it's possible to neglect your own country, culture uh, and not realize that by learning your own culture, what you actually learn is how to appreciate how other people love their cultures. Yeah. So then you begin to study other cultures as well. If you don't have Western civilization under your, under your foundation, as it were, uh, then the element of love for all people... Gets lost, it's a tr- and we get into a kind of tribalist world. It's
0: a truer kind of, if I can use this word, it's a truer kind of multiculturalism. Like a yeah. typical academic multiculturalism and popular multiculturalism, is an idea that all cultures are equally valid in some way, which is really another way of saying all cultures are equally boring because are yeah. they or that they should be boring. When, you know, like, well, they should be just kind of these banal things that if you celebrate them, that's fine, but just keep it over there. And as soon as your (laughs) culture puts a suicide vest on and blows something up, then we don't understand, like, why you're. this is not how it's supposed to work. Or, in a lesser sense, if you, like, don't want to bake a cake for somebody or something like that, it's like, hey, like, all, you're not supposed, your culture is supposed to be, like, boxed off in some way. So there's a multiculturalism that sees them all as equal and thus equally unimportant, and, in addition, that the Western world is the source of all evils and is the one... That's the weird thing. All cultures are equally valid except the Western culture, which is ultimately evil. That's right. Even though it's the Western culture that gave us this idea. That's right. But the thing is is that a truer multiculturalism begins by love of your own culture. That's right. So that by truly true love of it, understanding it, warts and all, someone who embodied this... Really well. One person that bought this really well was a a, a little man named G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton. Yes. Now, which I, tell I, me, about, I don't know anything. About no, that. I don't know about, I never talk about it. Never at grow all. a Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton. I mean, Chesterton was it, it was a strange he was a strange bird Japanese fellow. Yeah, it Japanese. It was just a strong, very good kanji in there. Uh, Chesterton. I don't even know if that's Japanese or maybe Chinese, but mm, okay. uh, good. Thank you. I know you know better than me. Uh, but he, he he was a very strange bird because I remember when I was studying him for my master's thesis, um, he was like this staunch, staunch patriot. Mm-hmm. He loved England. He mm-hmm. loved. He was super like English patriot, but he was anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't believe in the empire. And the reason he didn't believe the empire was good is because he felt like the empire was trying to make everybody British. When he was like, they have their own cultures. Right. And he's like... And he's like he and they have their own nations. And he's like he because he loved his own nation, he didn't he wasn't jingoist, like he greatly distinguished that. I think his famous phrase was like somebody who says my country right or wrong is like saying my mother drunk or sober. (laughs) And he's like, Yeah, no, that's right. He's he's like, That's not how that works. Okay. There is an objective standard to measure the thing by. But he understood love of country, the love of the soil, the love of the art and the history of it. And because he understood his own love of country, he could understand someone else with their own culture and their own history. And he's like, we don't have a right as one nation to try and erase all that and make everybody British. Right.
1: right. You know,
0: right. we right. as Christians, we have an obligation to preach the gospel. But the gospel is not about erasing culture. It's about reestablishing, reestablishing a connection with the creator of creation and thus, in a way, the creator of all cultures.
1: That's right. That's right, the, and the, the, to to find—I've always said—you to find your unity in those things that are too low on the spectrum, on the hierarchy, right? Uh, causes all sorts of troubles. If I start trying to find, everyone needs unity. Yeah, everyone needs unity. We have to find our unity in something, but if we find our unity in our race or in our nationality or in our gender or in our economic class or in our well, name what you like, um, our, our ideology, um, our, our homosexuality or our sexual preferences or something. Sure. If, if you do, if you find your unity there, you'll end up be having to make enemies of anybody who disagrees with you. Right. But if you. We'll cut that out. <clears throat> but if you find your unity in Christ. Right then you can delight in the differences between you and another race or another culture or another nationality. You can find delight in that because people aren't all the same. None of us is the same. None of us are the same. We uh, we have different skin color, sure, but we have different upbringing. We have different economic backgrounds and so on. Um, to, to To make those things, those lesser things, mm-hmm. the thing that we hold to as our unity. Right. Then I think what we end up doing is damaging ourselves and damaging other people too. For that,
0: matter. I think that's what like Preston uh, is all about. Like, or at least that's what I got. Like, his opinion is, you know, there's something higher than my sexuality that's that right. matters, and, I'm, right. and I'm, I'm centering around that, right? You know, and right. that that creates uh, a love of differences, and also creates a kind of moral clarity. That's right. It, it creates somebody who can say, you know, I have these tendencies, but I agree with. You know, God and, you know, and and honestly, Christ, like I say, you know, we center around Christ. People assume that means, well, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. Well, okay, no, he didn't talk about a lot of things. He didn't talk about like, you know, nuclear uh, fusion or embryonic stem cell research. There's a lot of things he didn't talk about. But in the whole of Christian thinking, all of uh, the entire Christian worldview about him, he's not he's not just the man who walked on earth 2,000 years ago is also the logos that creates and sustains everything. Amen. So everything in Genesis about creation of male and female and all that jazz includes Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so is that, did he talk about like gender? No, but he did create it, yeah. you know, so that, that, that's kind of something, right? right? But that's the thing It's like, Jesus is still this thing that is over it all. He's over all cultures and he's bigger than all of them. And he is this rallying point that if I could put it that way he has a kind of rallying point where you can go to and say, this is bigger than my sexuality. There's, there's a, uh, a uh, an online writer, I think I've mentioned before, Bad Catholic, I think. Oh, yeah. It's a great blog yeah. he writes on. But this is some. he's a Catholic. tell. And he's he stresses this a lot. He stressed this a lot when he was talking, he would write about like gender issues and stuff like that. He basically was like, you know, the church's main message for these people, one of the main messages of these people is stop is like stop introducing yourself with you know your private parts basically it's like you're not uh-huh. you are not your sexuality or something bigger than that going
1: on good that's a great point there's something larger than that that's a great point I, let let's just sum up a little bit about this whole uh, nashville statement uh, question i think what we've said is that the nashville statement appears to us as uh, a very clear representation of what the bible teaches about sexuality and it doesn't specific, specifically state uh, how one might go about addressing pastorally somebody who's going through some difficulties, uh, wrestling with the with his temptations in that area. I think it's clear that that all people wrestle with temptations in that area. It's not just uh, a, a line against uh, uh, the gay community, the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if read that way, it's understandable why people like Sprinkles would have such a trouble with it because. Uh, it sounds very harsh, it sounds very unloving, sounds very unkind. It
0: sounds very flat and doctrinaire.
1: Maybe. Yeah, I'm not even sure that it sounds, it sounds harsh. I'm not saying it is harsh, mind right. you. I'm saying it sounds harsh if you take it from that perspective. Now, I, I found that uh, Sprinkles actually had some very good things to say about it, and I think we should take him to heart on a couple of things, that mainly uh, the compassion that we should show in our pastoral relationships with people who are struggling with sin. Uh, and recognizing that we're sinners ourselves, and and speaking to them in a very humble way, and 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 full of grace and truth, as you said so well, and Jesus quoted Jesus saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but also, I think he's mistaken in his approach, in that he he looked at it from that one angle, as though this were a statement specifically against LGBTQ people, and it wasn't. No. And I, I don't believe it was. And I, and for that reason, I think he needs to rethink some things uh, in his critique. Yeah. Beyond that, I think the um, the liturgist uh, uh, article that we both read uh-huh. seems to me to have some explaining to do. It seems to me that it, it makes some assertions about what God accepts and what he rejects right. without a whole lot of, uh, of uh, uh, argue without a whole lot, a lot of supporting right. argument.
0: A lot of statements than arguments.
1: That's right. Now that you could argue that the Nashville statement is a series of statements as well. We I affirm did. this. I deny that. We deny that. However, I think you can you can see the arguments there from the Bible, and I think the the ones that uh, come from the uh, the liturgist piece need to need to rethink the, their their arguments. They have to actually give better uh, supporting material in order to be taken. Seriously, but I do think the sprinkles argument actually is in the middle and has some validity, and has uh, and also has some problems with it. So I'm glad to have read all three of them, and I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that if any of our listeners are going to dive into this, mm-hmm. that they will take uh, all take the chance to read all three of those uh, because they're all worth reading and uh, considering.
0: Well. With that we will perfectly segue into as we're running out of time. Oh right. We will run in we will segue into recommendations from the week. Anything yeah. any, anything you got, Hodges, something to read or the, for those of you who may not know, we like to wrap up our podcast with anything we've run into over the last week or so where it's something we've read or we've seen or we've listened to. And we just want to recommend it to you, our listeners, as something to go check out. So other than the Nash the three statements, it's the Nashville statement, it's the statement by the liturgist and Aaron Sprinkle his statement is called my Nashville statement uh, if you google Preston Sprinkle my Nashville statement you should be able to find it but Hodges is there anything you like uh, would like to recommend and then I'll go
1: yes i'm i'm interested in uh, we were talking about the importance of western civilization western culture and so on and why it's important to read those things there was an article um i think it's not recent it's probably a couple of years ago maybe last year no it's last year february of 2016 by uh, a, a dr patrick Denine, who teaches at uh, notre dame college uh and it's called how a generation lost its common culture and in it he says um Basically, I mean, he's very, very forthright about it. He says, uh, "My st- he taught at he taught at um, Georgetown, he taught at uh, Princeton, and now he's teaching at Notre Dame." So he certainly had uh, a lot of experience with college students. And he starts the thing off by saying, "My students, my college students, are know nothings. Mm-hmm. That is, they're people who don't know anything." Well, now. That would be a terrible thing, right? He says they're very kind, they're very generous, they're very humble, they're very nice people. They're 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 very uh, uh, easy to get along with. They're respectful of their elders. They're respectful of their just nice people. But they just don't know anything. They don't know. And when he goes, when he says anything, he's talking about. You know uh he asks a lot of questions have hands up how many of you have read the Iliad and the odyssey how you know how many of have, have uh, uh, know who Saul of Tarsus is? How many of um, you know why the
0: Middle ages are significant
1: that's right <laughs> so exactly like that. do you do you know your history do you know your books do you know your music and art and so on who are you and have you accepted and embraced the inheritance of your own western culture and here but here's the important thing I mean, you hear a lot of sort of uh, complaints and, and hand-wringing about the state of the uh, education today and so on everywhere. And the thing that made this stand out for me was, first of all, that he's had so much, much experience in our nation's biggest uh, uh-huh. uh, colleges, but also that he, he's saying, yes, the education is failing because they're not learning these things, but you can't call it failure. Mm. What he says is, this is actually intentional. All right. And his argument is one I'd like to bring up in a future uh, podcast. Absolutely. That, that uh, and I hope maybe in the meantime, people that are listening today will go and read this. Are you uh, giving uh, our argument. listeners homework? Yes, I am. I'm hoping they'll read it and then come back and they listen the next time and we can talk about it. But, the, uh, but what he's saying is that the education that we're offering actually intentionally cuts our students off from their own history. It intentionally cuts them off from their own culture. And the reason for that, they actually think they're doing a good thing. By doing that, they're getting them to the point that they can be easily manipulated. They can be easily guided, and a uh, 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 tumbleweed is easier to blow around than a, a rooted plant, right? right? If, you're not, if you're not connected to your own culture, you're easily swayed, and so that's what they're looking
0: for. Sort of a men, man without chest kind of scenario. Yes, very
1: much like that, uh, making reference to uh, Abolition of Man, an excellent, uh, excellent book, and one that we're going to be working with our students this week, actually. So that's my contribution, and maybe people will read it. We can talk about it more next time. All right, so
0: Dr. Patrick Deneen.
1: Deneen. His uh,
0: his essay, uh, How a Generation Lost Its Culture. probably find it online. Let's Google it. Uh, My recommendations are all DragonCon related. because recently. So the first one would be, if you've never been to DragonCon, you should go, especially if you live down in the south like we do. You're like, well, Comic-Con sounds big, but so far away you can I drove there from Memphis to there in like a little under six hours
1: you know to Atlanta yeah mm-hmm. and to Atlanta
0: go there especially if you love nerd and geek culture go there especially if you love nerd and geek culture and you have a heart for that type of culture mm-hmm. please please go there and see and enjoy yourself and maybe even ask that God will use you to be a light a true light to him in that area but definitely go to Dragon con and enjoy yourself. And the second recommendation I have is I kept mentioning Robert Cargill, who it's C. Robert Cargill. I can't remember what the C stands for, but Robert Cargill uh, has written a book called Sea of Rust. And it's a science fiction sort of dystopian story where all of humanity has been killed by, you know, the AI robot uprising or whatever. But they're all dead and there's only robots now. And it follows the story of a robot named Brittle, I think, who is wandering a wasteland uh, called The Sea of Rust. And it sounds like it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I haven't read it yet, but I picked it up. And he's a great great writer. His movies are good and stuff. And I just think it would be something worth picking up. It's called Sea of Rust by Robert Cargill. If you're a science fiction person, go ahead and pick it up. If you're a Christian who wonders, how can a Christian write science fiction, fantasy, speculative stuff, and not be preachy or, you know, I'm not bullhornish about it. It might be something worth looking into. So Robert Carhill's
1: book, Sea of Rust. Excellent, excellent. Check it out. I'm going to be speaking uh, several times in the near future, and uh, be fun to tell people about that. I, I'm going to be doing a five-lecture uh, series on the relationship between theology and the arts, All right. starting next Tuesday, so a week from today. We, we're, we're recording this on, uh, what is today? The 5th, I guess. Mm-hmm. So on the 12th, I'm going to start. Uh, and it'll go for the next uh, four weeks after that, up until October 10th, on Tuesday afternoons. If you're interested in that, you can get in touch with us at uh, director at centerws.com. And uh, the, the first one is generally on theology and the place of the arts within the theological framework. But the next ones, the, ne- the next four, are more specific. One on poetry, one on music, one on architecture and visual art, uh, and uh, uh, one on... Um, What's the fourth one? Oh, theater. So uh, if you're interested in any of that, uh, we'd love to have you come.
0: This is a local thing?
1: Right. Something here in Memphis. Uh, It'll be held at Second Presbyterian Church at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoons for uh, the next five Tuesdays. And then in addition to that, I'm speaking at um, uh, the Labrie Conference that's being held uh, October 14th at uh, uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis uh, with my friends Bill Edgar from Westminster Seminary and uh, Dick Kies, who is the uh, head of the Labrie uh, branch in uh, Boston. And uh, the three of us and many other Labrie people working are going to be talking about uh, the influence of the Reformation, uh, since this is the 500th anniversary uh, year of the Reformation. We're going to be talking about that. And since the arts are my area, so I'm going to be talking about uh, the influence of the Reformation uh, in the 16th century on the art of the, of the late 16th early 17th centuries and on into the, to today so.
0: and if you're interested in any of these uh, any of these speaking engagements you can either email directly director at centerws.com uh, or you can go to our website www.centerws.com and there's a contact us thing there you can contact us with any information you need Uh, our time is up this has been the From the Center podcast Uh, I'm Jack Bowell and this has been John Hodges and we will see you next